I feel like I've mentioned this already, but I was given a new wallet for Father's Day. Given, well, I shopped for it. I picked it out online on the one I wanted and I ordered and paid for it myself. But it was my Father's Day present. But this ain't your average old school wallet. My new wallet is the ultimate in minimalism, which feels and sounds virtuous to say. My new wallet comes with an AirTag. AirTag's now sold separately. That's right, if I lose my wallet anywhere, it has a GPS tracker attached to it. I can locate my wallet from my phone, assuming I don't lose them both at the same time. I bought the AirTag from the Apple Store a couple of weeks, uh, just a week or so ago, and it, turned on, and it turned on my iPhone and it paired automatically. It was that simple and that easy. It just worked. It's really cool. But if you were born before 1997, you're probably thinking, nice story, old man, what's a wallet? But you move through life, you move through digital spaces effortlessly. Technology is the air that you breathe. You were born with a sixth sense on how to use tablets, apps, pods, smartphones and watches. You only know a world where technology works. It's smooth and it operates as advertised. Before he was two years old, Joel, our son, knew how to program our TV recorder and although he'd already clogged up all of the hard drive... I'm sure he never got around to watching all those episodes of In the Night Garden again. <laughs> but anyone before, born before 1997 knows how much technology has changed. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s during the first wave of the microprocessor revolution. I was part of the first generation with home video game consoles and VCRs and Blackberries and Pages. Did anyone else have an Atari? Okay, one hand, that's good. Anyone else own a Palm Pilot? Awesome. It's going well so far. At the time, if you had one, they were amazing too. But it was never as smooth as today's software. It was always so clunky, wasn't it, Craig? It never worked as promised it still is. It was glitch upon glitch. You could count on the advertising features not working properly or not working at all. I knew families who bought VCRs but didn't know how to set the digital clock on them. And so for years and years, the little white lights just annoyingly flashed 12 o'clock all the time. Like money, technology shapes us. Things that we hold in our hands often do. And so now we want everything else to be smooth, especially when it comes to relationships particularly when it comes to relationships at church. We expect everything just to work as promised. We become frustrated when things get glitchy. When we message someone now, we, mess we expect them to send a message straight back. And if we don't get an immediate reply on our SMS, we wonder if there's something wrong with them. The anxiety frustrates us. The frustration makes us anxious. Either way, we expect life to be smooth. We can't wait anymore. We hate the idea of waiting. That slow spinning wheel of death means accepting that there is tension, uncertainty and vulnerability in our lives. And when things aren't smooth, when things don't go smoothly for us, whenever we hit a glitch, sitting and waiting feels disgusting. In a culture that is obsessed with smooth, what sane person wants to wait for anything anymore. Well, James says we do. 
Christ followers need to wait patiently. See it there, you've got your Bible, James chapter 5, verse 7. Let's see it together. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient, says James. That is his final word to the church. Patience. Be patient. Wait patiently. Well, who has time for any of that? In James's letter to the Christ followers scattered amongst the nations, learning how to be the church in the world, learning how to integrate life and faith together, learning how to live wholeheartedly for Jesus, James tells them to wait. His final exhortation to the church is patience. Now, James has said some pretty hard and difficult stuff, hasn't he? He's been punchy and practical the whole way through. At every point throughout this letter together, there's been some practical things here for us to go away and work on. It hasn't been easy for us to hear it as a church at times. It's even been harder to start living this stuff out. It's kind of like James has been building up for this apocalyptic ending and we've all now been bracing ourselves for the final impact. But then James just says something like, oh, hang on a sec, to finish his letter. Look there, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's an apocalyptic ending, all right. James says the Lord's coming is at hand. But instead of saying to the church, tell as many people the gospel as you can... Instead of saying to the church, invite as many people as you want to come, instead of saying to us, do more, grow more, give more, get more, James says, see it there, be patient. Not just be patient in this moment, not just be patient for a little bit, no, no, see it there again, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit odd? Doesn't that cut against everything else that we've been thinking of doing as a church? Doesn't that seem to be the exact, exact opposite of what every other church is doing everywhere else? Doesn't that run counter to the idea of urgency and our need to do everything, everywhere, all at once? Listen, if you reckon James has slipped off the grid, headed down a back road somewhere, off script, off register, off radar and off road, Well, that's because he has. Suddenly we've gone all rural with James and we've headed out for a change of scenery. James now has us looking at farms and considering the lifestyle of farmers. See it again there, verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient like the farmers, says James. Like the farmer who waits for rain. You be patient like him. That's a nice image, isn't it? Peaceful, tranquil, serene, dependent. And it still resonates within our modern context today, doesn't it? But let me tell you, having pastored a church for five years in Henty, a small rural community in southwestern New South Wales, Let me tell you from first-hand experience, friends, farmers are not patient. Why aren't you doing your job properly? They would stop me down the street buying milk. We need rain desperately, they'd tell me. Go home and tell your boss to send us some. I kid you not. 
Every Sunday when someone led the prayers at church, we could, you could guarantee that they'd be praying for rain. You could set your watch to the requests. They were more persistent in their prayers for rain than the rain was itself. After being in some pretty serious drought, one year I made such a big deal about praying for rain that we put on a couple of events in town and invited everybody in the community to come to church. That Sunday at church, the place was packed to overflowing. And for almost two weeks after, the rain didn't stop. (laughs) Down the street again to buy milk a fortnight later. Hey, Mike, why don't you tell him to stop now? (laughs) Please don't miss James's point. It's not that farmers are patient by choice. They're patient because they have to be. They've got no other choice than to wait because they're not in control. And friends, neither are we. We don't know when Jesus is coming. James says soon. Jesus said soon too. But we want to be in control now, don't we? That's why we're always busy doing something. If you're feeling the need to do something, James says, do this, be patient. That's what he instructs the church to do. Stand firm. Establish your hearts for waiting. The coming of the Lord is at hand. So if we're being told to cool our heels and wait for a little bit, what does waiting look like? Well, here's what it doesn't look like. Look there again, verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Waiting patiently now means not firing off at one another and having a whinge about everybody else behind their backs especially when things get glitchy between us. Patience doesn't mean avoiding or ignoring them. It doesn't mean keeping your distance or keeping the score. If we're impatient with each other, how can we patiently wait for Jesus? If we can't be patient with one another, how are we different at all in any way to the world? Listen, I want to be as clear about this as I can, and I think James is pretty clear about it too. Love is patience. Love is patience, says 1 Corinthians 13. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, friends, isn't like a platter that you get to pick from whatever you like. Eat all the strawberries, leave all the rock melon. That's not how it works. Patience is a non-negotiable of being a Christ follower. Loving one another requires patience. We should be people who strive to be patient, known by others for our patience. Patience makes us radically different to other people. Patience is what marks us out as belonging to God. See it there with me, John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Patience is love. Jesus was so patient with his disciples. Man, they must have driven him sideways sometimes. What a frustrating and annoying bunch they were. Most Christians are, aren't they? Yet Jesus has been so patient with us. He's been so incredibly patient with you, hasn't he? Have you ever noticed that the most impatient people 
are the people who test your patience the most. The people who are impatient with us are the people who need to be, who we need to be most patient with. Impatient people are, need our patience the most. They, they test our patience. But we're not being patient with one another when we're grumbling and complaining about them, are we? Complaining about the person that you're sitting next to, grumbling about the person that you wouldn't sit next to. When we do that, we judge one another. To use James's words, we show favouritism and partiality. Judging one another is the opposite of patience. When we declare judgment on someone else, our patience has run out with them. But that's not how God treats us, is it? Judgment of others is not our place to occupy. We are not to be judgmental. We are not the judge. Because the judge is standing at the door. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And it's not those who fly off the handle who we look up to now, is it? The guy who loses his cool and spits the dummy or the woman who squawks and screeches at her kids. Anger, frustration, impatience, going off, blowing your stack, losing your mind, being fed up, slow to listen but quick to speak and to become angry does not produce the righteousness of God. James has told us that already. And besides, that's not the example we're following now, is it? Look there, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Perseverance under trial. Joyfully, James started his letter here, didn't he? This is where he finishes. Here are, the, here are some examples of those who've been patient in their suffering. Think of the Old Testament prophets, says James. Take a look at the life of Job. Job's perseverance in suffering is legendary. It's proverbial, which is also another book of the Old Testament. But we don't have time this morning to have a look at the life of Job together in any detail, which is ironic, given that this is a talk about patience. Without all the specifics, though, here's the point. They persevered when their faith was tested. They let perseverance do its work in their lives. Friends, the word during hard times is perseverance. We persevere our way into maturity. We don't get there by reading books or listening to podcasts. The way to maturity is perseverance. That's God's purpose for us in our suffering. That's why we need to be patient. God does his deepest work in us during our hardest times. Perseverance is the key to maturity. Being blessed is being like them, says James. And Jesus said it too. Matthew 5 verse 10. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're facing some trials at the moment. Feeling pressured. Feeling like you're under the pump. 
Can I be honest with you all for a minute? Can I, can I share my heart with you for a sec? It just feels like one thing after another lately. And it's felt that way for a long time now. The merry-go-round, it doesn't stop, and it stopped being merry some time ago. If it's not one thing, it's something else. It's relentless, it's tiring, it's exhausting. It's like an awful game of whack-a-mole. Issues and problems, they just keep popping up everywhere. I feel like I'm going crazy. It feels like God's gone silent. I just want it all to stop and to go away. And maybe you do too. Maybe you feel that way as well. Rejoice and be glad, says James. Consider it all joy. Because you're not going crazy. And God hasn't abandoned you. Yes, it's tiring, it's exhausting, it's humiliating and you will feel vulnerable which feels like death to me. But God is at work in you. Blessed are those who remain steadfast in it. Blessed are you when you face various trials of many kinds. It doesn't feel very blessed, does it? feels like a curse or a pox but here's the blessing friends we are blessed when we see our current situation from God's sovereign perspective blessed when we see the purpose of the Lord and that is what James is inviting us to do we're being invited to see what God does and what he's doing at work amongst us in the difficulties and the details of our lives God's working towards the, full, the fullness of our faith, being made mature and complete in him. Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus. Consider it all joy, says James. While ever we keep our eyes on Jesus, we gain a clarity on our present situation that we can get nowhere else when we only focus on ourselves and how to fix the current issues that we're facing. We lose sight of God's perspective and we get swallowed up by all of the details and the impossibilities of it all. But James is inviting you and I to look beyond ourselves and to see how God is at work right now in our lives. See it with me, won't you? Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Like the farmer who waits for rain, the suffering and the sick are called on to pray because they aren't the ones that are in control. They pray to express their dependence on God, on the one who is sovereignly in control of all things. Remember what James said, religion that God accepts gives attention to the widow and the orphan. God hears the prayers of those who cry to him. God hears the cries of the oppressed and the, in, and the unjust. God brings healing and restoration and peace to those who cry out to him in their times of need. Sitting with a bunch of ministers this week, they asked me what I was preaching on today at church and when I told them that it was this passage, they said, oh, that's the one about healing oil. Good luck with that. But that's not what this is about at all, is it? 
It's not about healing properties of olive oil. I've heard conversations on this passage about how ministers should take oil with them when they go and visit the sick. And if you want me to do that, no worries. But I hope this stuff about oil has struck you by now that this isn't just about slick exegesis. And about our current levels of righteousness and the efficacy of whether or not God is attentive to your prayers. James has been clear and direct from the outset of his letter, why would things start to get a little bit slippery now? If you're suffering or you're sick, what's he saying? He's saying, cry out to God. He hears and he answers. Be patient. Righteous people cry out to God in faith. Religious people just cry out in frustration. James invites us to see God's work in us. God's deep and restorative work in our lives right now. Rather than condemning everyone for their sins because you've lost patience with them, James says, confess your sins to one another. Invite other believers to enter into your life. That's radical, isn't it? Imagine sharing over morning tea what it is that you've done wrong this week. That's what he's telling us to do. Why? So that we might see how God is at work in your life. How God is healing and forgiving and restoring you. If you're suffering anyway, if you need healing and rest, if others are giving up and wandering away, James says, be patient, be prayerful. James is inviting us to see what God is doing, what God wants to do in our lives together. James invites us to see all of life from God's perspective and to live wholeheartedly from it. How God uses our sin and suffering and struggles to draw us away from our pride and arrogance and our boasting and away from our friendship with the world and to draw us nearer to him. To not just be hearers of the word, but to be doers who put his word into practice. To live out our faith that we say that we believe while we wait patiently for his return. Friends, you cannot microwave maturity. We must behave our way into it through perseverance. So as we finish our series together on James, that's what I want to invite all of us to as well. I want to invite you to see and to name how God is at work in your life. To see and to name our current circumstances and to see them from God's sovereign perspective. To see and to name God's work in one another And to rejoice and to be glad in our various trials of many kinds. Together. Because if we have ears that are quick to listen and mouths that are slow to speak, we might actually begin to see the Lord's purposes being shown to us. Waiting in in this moment with these people. That's what the Lord has called the church to do. Wait in this moment with these people to see and to name how God is at work amongst us. Because friends, his coming is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Let's pray.
Our Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that is patient to see you at work in us and amongst us. Would you help us to accept the invitation to come and to see and to name your work amongst us together? It is so easy for us. In fact, we are conditioned, not just by our culture, but by our hearts to see all that's negative and all that's wrong and all that's bad and all that could be better. Would you reorientate our hearts? to see what it is that you're doing amongst us and to see how you're at work in us and to look for and to name and to delight together that you are with us, present with us even in this moment. Would you teach us to be people who are patient? Would you help us to be different from the world around us because we are patient people? not quick to anger, not quick to judgment. Help us to love one another as you have loved us, Lord Jesus, so that the world might know, the Gold Coast particularly, that we are your disciples. And for those of us who suffer this morning, and there are some of us who feel the weight of things enormously, Lord Jesus, would you hear their cries as they cry out to you? Would you hear and would you be merciful and compassionate and gracious? Would you take all that hurts so much, all that is unknown and all that is uncertain and use it to bring us to completion, fullness, maturity in Jesus? Thank you that these are your purposes for us. Help us to rejoice in them. Amen.